there's a title for you, The Mystery of Messiah, The Mystery of Messiah. And I really encourage you this morning to have your Bible open in Ephesians chapter 3. And that passage was read for you. Why don't you put up your hand if you are someone that enjoys mysteries. Do you, somebody, do you enjoy sort of trying to figure out the, a particular mystery? How many Agatha Christie whodunits out there? Maybe the older generation. Is that, sorry, sorry. Are there, are there any Cluedo game fans out there, the whodunits? Professor Plum and all those sort of things. How many of you enjoy watching those documentaries that try to sort of highlight, show, or reveal a particular mystery? A little bit something like this. Um, uh, You know, where where you've got this mystery of the Bermuda Triangle. Does that intrigue you? Amen? Some of you out there. How did they build the pyramids in a pre-scientific age? What about those murder mysteries? What about those mysteries of the natural wonders of the world? How about this mystery? How about, how about that one? You know what that one is? That is the Loch Ness Monster somewhere. I know what it looks like. Anyway, how about this one? Anyone know what this one is? Who's that? That's Bigfoot. Woo-hoo! The mystery of Bigfoot. But I will say this. So, does look like somebody in a monkey suit, doesn't it? <laughs> no, forget that. But for some of us, the mysteries are a little bit more simple. Like the mystery, what sort of present do you buy your wife every single year? It's actually no longer a mystery for me. My wife wants the same present every single year. Where's that picture? Ooh, I'll come back to that one. I'll come back. There we go. That's cute. Last, uh, last Sunday night on uh, Current Affair, program called Phenomena, they showed this picture. It was actually in video form. They showed this picture of a UFO that was spotted somewhere hovering over the waters, and that is the picture. And this particular UFO has baffled scientists and the world ever since. What a mystery that is. Do you think there is any alien life form out there? What do you reckon? Don't answer that question. But did you know that in the Old Testament there is a mystery? And if you were listening to that passage, there is a mystery which is called the mystery of Christ or the mystery of of the Messiah. And there was a mystery in the Old Testament that no one but no one could fathom. No one could figure it out. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not the prophets. We're even told that the angels in heaven could not figure out the mystery of the Messiah. They couldn't figure out how God was going to solve the mystery of Messiah. Did you pick it up? Have a look at it in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 4, where Paul says, In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Do you see it there? There it is. That's the mystery of the Old Testament. It's the mystery of Christ, or the mystery of Messiah. Now look at that verse carefully. 
When does Paul say, actually, let me uh, read verse 5, which says, which was not made known to the people in the other generations, Old Testament, as it's been now revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So as you look at that verse of this mystery that's in the Old Testament, when is the mystery revealed? When do we get to know how it's solved? What does this verse say? When? It's, it's in the... It's in the New Testament. It's in the, the New Covenant. It's what's written down for us through the apostles and the New Testament prophets. So let me put it like this. The New Testament or the New Covenant is the revelation or the understanding of the mystery of the Messiah. So here's a couple of questions for you to ponder just at the start. Do you know what the mystery of the Messiah is in the Old Testament? Do you know how it's revealed in the New Testament? And because we've got this great mystery, we could almost say that the Bible is like a mystery suspense and just how God solves and lets us know how this mystery is solved is a thrilling thing, if you will forgive the pun. So here are four questions that I'm going to answer as we unpack the mystery of the Messiah. What is the mystery of the Messiah? How is the mystery of the Messiah solved or revealed? What does the mystery of Messiah do? And then fourthly, what does the mystery of the Messiah mean for us? And I do hope, having whet your appetite, that you're sort of sitting on the edge of your seat, hope, sort of anticipating, uh, what is this mystery and how is it solved? All right, so let's start with that first question. What is the mystery of the Messiah? And I wonder if you picked it up as it was read. Our key verse is verse... Anybody want to hazard a guess? What's the key verse in the passage? Very good. Very good. There's the key verse. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, look at the verse carefully. What's the mystery? The mystery is how do the Gentiles, how do the non-Jews, how do they become heirs of the promises to Israel? Or you could put it like this, the mystery, how do the Gentiles become part of the people of God? Or put it slightly differently, how is it that all the salvation promises made to Israel, how do they come to the nations? How do they come to the Gentiles? That's the mystery. Now, let me just sort of show it to you a little bit further, a little bit deeper in Genesis chapter 12. And you'll remember that God comes to Abraham and he makes a whole lot of promises. Genesis 12 and verse 1, he says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household and go to a land that I will show you. In verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
Now, when you look at that promises or those promises, what's clear? What's clear? Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. That's clear, right? That's not a mystery. It's clear. Abraham, I'm, I'm going to make you into a great nation. That's clear. I'm going to bless you, Abraham. That's clear. But, but what's not clear? How are you going to do it for the nations? How are you going to bring them into this promise? How are you going to save them? How are you going to bless them? How are you going to get them into all of this? And this mystery just intensifies and intensifies as the history of Israel unfolds. God gives them the land. He gives them the Mosaic Covenant. He gives them the laws. He gives them the regulations. He gives them a king. He gives them all the promises. But the question still remains, how do the Gentiles get into this thing? Man, what a mystery. And no one could absolutely figure it out. And just to sort of make it even more intriguing and more mysterious, if you like, take a look at how... How God speaks through Isaiah, Isaiah 56, 6 to 8. Now listen to this. Listen to the promises to the nations. And foreigners, that's Gentiles, non-Jews, nations, and the nations who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and all who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain. I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Do you see the bamboozling mystery? How is God going to bring all the nations to come and worship in Israel? How is God going to get all the nations to come into the temple so that the temple will be a house of prayer? Now, any thinking, believing Israelites knew this was a profound mystery because they were asking the same questions. How is it that the nations are going to keep the Sabbaths? How is it that the nations are going to come to Israel? How is it that the nations are going to come to the temple? Think about it. How are you going to, how are you going to get all the nations into a small temple? That would be like trying to take 50,000 people and put them in this auditorium. Duh. It don't work, does it? The mystery was not that God would save the Gentiles. The mystery is not that God would bless the, the nations. The, the mystery was how was he going to do it? Israel wasn't big enough for all the nations. Duh. The temple wasn't big enough. The Gentiles weren't even allowed into the temple area. They had to stay out in the courtyard. you remember that? Hopefully that picture from last week that Simon showed us. So here's the mystery. How, God, are you going to fulfill your promises of blessings to the nations as you outlined to Abraham, as you outlined in Isaiah, as you outlined in all of the Old Testament? That's the mystery. Second question. How is the mystery solved? 
Ever had that sort of aha moment when you're in that sort of Agatha Christie whodunit? Or you're watching that, I don't know, that program and it was him, it was her, oh, I've sold it. You probably got lucky most of the time. Here's the aha moment of the mystery of Messiah. Do you see it in verse 6, our key verse again? This mystery is that through the, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs with Israel. Through the gospel, they are members of one body. Through the gospel, they are sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. How does God solve the mystery? Aha! Through the, through the gospel. The plan of God, the plan of God in calling a people to himself from all nations was, was as clear as crystal in the Old Testament. What was clear as mud was how he was going to do it. Ah! 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 Through the gospel, through the life, through the death, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the gospel, the nations would come into the salvation blessings promised to Israel. And when the apostles got it, when the early disciples got it, it absolutely changed everything. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28 after he had risen from the dead? What did he say? Go into? Go into all the? With what? With the gospel. Go to the, gos go to the nations with the gospel. Don't go and get the Gentiles and bring them to Israel. Don't go and get the lost sheep of Israel and bring them back to Israel. Go to the nations with the gospel. They will be blessed. They will be saved as they hear, respond in faith to the gospel. The mystery is solved in the gospel. So let's go to our third question. What does... The mystery of the Messiah do. Back to our key verse yet again. Have a look at it. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise that is in Christ Jesus. Can you see what the gospel does? It's not just that the gospel brings non-Jews or Gentiles into salvation blessings. Can you see? There is something even more profound going on. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. They are sharers in the promises in Christ Jesus. But what's in the very middle there? What's the middle? They are members of what? One body. Do you see it? What the gospel does, the gospel does not join Israel to the nations. And the gospel doesn't join the nations to Israel. What does the gospel do? 
It takes two separate entities and makes them one. One brand spanking new entity, if you like. One new body, which is called what? The church. And as you can probably imagine, for Jewish believers, that, that, is no, that Israel is no longer the thing, that the two become one body, one entity, one humanity, one church, that absolutely blew the Jewish socks off the Jewish believers. Do you know how long it took Peter to get this? Even after he was filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, he still struggled to get it. But perhaps we can just go a little deeper with it. Let's just back up into Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. If you've got your Bible, take a look at it. Let's just, let's just, let's just dig a little bit here. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. In the gospel, in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, every single rule and regulation in the Old Testament is fulfilled. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, every promise to Israel, every promise to Israel has been fulfilled. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant. He has died for those who have broken that covenant, which means that at the cross, what Jesus did is he destroyed every single religious mosaic barrier between Jew and Gentile. Anything that divided the nations from Israel, absolutely gone, demolished, abolished, destroyed, taken out, whichever word that you want to use. What has God done? That at the cross, he has broken down the barriers between Jew and Gentile and taken the two and in the gospel, by faith, joined them and made them what? One. One new body. One new spiritual nation. One new spiritual temple. One, one church. Some of you will recognize this picture or a variation thereof. Anybody know what that is? That's the Berlin Wall. That was uh, being taken down, destroyed on the 9th of November, 1989. And you'll remember, won't you, that it was a wall that separated East Germany from? From West Germany, right? And they destroyed that wall. Eventually, they just bulldozed the whole thing. They took the whole thing out so that there's no longer East Germany and there's no longer West Germany. What is there now? It's Germany. The two become... By taking down the wall. Christ in his death and his resurrection has taken down the mosaic old covenant wall between Jew and Gentile and made us one. Which leaves this question. So what does that mean for us? What does the mystery of Messiah, or if you want to put it, what, what is the revelation of the mystery of Messiah? What, okay, so what does that mean for us? And I'm going to give you five things 
Here's the first one. The first one is that when you get the aha moment that through the gospel, God takes Jews and Gentiles and makes them one body, one church, one nation, one temple, whatever you want to call it. When, 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 the, when the revelation of the mystery dawns before the eyes of your heart, when it's the aha spiritual moment, the only thing that happens or the first thing that happens is that there is praise and glory and awe that resounds back to God. To God be the glory mind-blowing, mysterious things he has done. And it's interesting that this is exactly what happens to Paul. I'm going to show it to you in Romans in a moment, that when Paul is writing to the Romans, the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome, uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11, he's writing all this. He's telling them how the two have become one. And at the end of Romans chapter 11, he just breaks forth into this glory to God, to this praise. Listen to what he says. This is at the end in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, if you've got your Bible, I want to show it to you. I'm going to put it on the screen. Paul does the same in, Rome, in, in Ephesians chapter 3. If you've got your Bible, you go down to the very last verse of the chapter and you see something extraordinary. After explaining that the two become one and this is the mystery of God revealed soul, what does Paul say? To him be glory where? In the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. To God be the glory. Great things He has done. Taking two diverse, different groups, Jews and Gentiles, and uniting them into one in the church, in Christ. <laughs> to God be the glory. Mysterious things. He has done. The first is the glory to God. Here's the second. Focus on the church. If God's eternal plan was to bring Jews and Gentiles into one body in the church, where's God's focus? The church. God's eternal plan was the church. God's focus is the church. It's not Israel. And if God's focus is the church, where should our focus be? If God is building his church, where should our focus be? If it's glory be to God in the church in Christ forever and ever... Should we not be seeking and striving to bring glory to God where? In the church, in the community of believers. If we get this, even just a little bit like this, we then begin to understand that if someone says that they are Christian and they want nothing to do with the church or they're not committed to the church, can you understand how crazy that is? Why? 
Because what you're saying is, I want nothing to do with what God is doing. I want nothing to do with his priorities. I want nothing to do with his focus. Philip Yancey, uh, some years ago now, Philip Yancey wrote a book. The title was called Church, Why Bother? Sounds like Winnie the Pooh. Why bother? Church, why bother? Why bother? Because God bothers. God bothers. The church was his eternal plan before the beginning of the world to bring the two and make them one. If God bothers, we bother. If it's glory to God in the church, it's glory to God in the church. His focus is our focus. His priorities are our priorities. His heart is our heart. His heart is the church. Our heart is the church. We're committed to her. We love her. We serve her. Let's make this a little bit more practical, though. And, uh, this goes, and this comes straight out of the text. Have a look at chapter 3 and verse 7, that we are servants of the gospel. Look at verse 7. Paul writes this. He says, uh, he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Now, we're, we're actually going to sing the song called Servants of the Gospel in a few minutes' time. Uh, when you look at that word servant, actually in the Greek, it's, it's the Greek word doulos, which actually means slave. He's, he's really saying, I'm a slave of the gospel. I, I, I'm a servant. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a slave. Now, what does that mean practically? What it means that, that, that if it is the gospel that has brought the church together, then our focus in the church is what? The gospel. It's the gospel that makes the two one. And therefore, when we're in the church, our focus becomes the gospel. What does that mean practically? It means that our uniting, central, holding point together is the gospel. We're not held together by our race or ethnicity or nationality, or social standing, or economic level. We're held together by the gospel. We're not held together by our Australianisms, as lovely as they are, or our South Africanisms, or our Scottishisms, or our Turkishisms, or our Chineseisms, or whatever ism you want to come up with. Our Human distinctions are secondary to the gospel in the church. It also means that if we're servants of the gospel, it means that our personal preferences are secondary to the gospel. It means that those secondary things that we all differ on, water baptism, end times, church government, nation of Israel, all that stuff, that stuff is all secondary to the gospel, our holding point, our uniting point, our central core is the gospel in the church. That's it. That's what holds it. And what that means practically in the church is that we are always seeking to have our personal lives and our lives together in the church shaped by the gospel. And so the question you've always got to ask is this. Is my life being shaped by the gospel or by something else? Is our lives together in the church, is it shaped by the gospel or is it shaped by some sort of personal preference? Is it shaped by some sort of human distinction? 
And I guess to put it this way, if it ain't the gospel, if it ain't the gospel, if it ain't by the gospel, for the gospel, through the gospel, we don't need it. We don't want it. Does it make sense? Let me make this a little bit more practical this way. Servants of the gospel impacts the way we do fellowship and hospitality. Ask yourself, well, hopefully you practice hospitality. I don't want to encourage you to do that. But if you practice hospitality, is your hospitality shaped by the gospel or shaped by personal comfortness? What do I mean? When you invite people for lunch, do you generally invite the people that are just like you? Like similar to you, similar age, similar preferences, similar color, similar nationality, similar isms, similar whatever. Or does our hospitality shaped by the gospel look out to those that come from China? Or Iran? Or Turkey? Where, oh man, you know that lunch is going to be really hard, isn't it? Because you can't understand what the other person's saying. Their cultural isms irritate the living daylights out of you. Are our personal lives and as our lives together as the church, are they shaped by the gospel? And that is a, it's a hard question. It's a question you've got to keep asking yourself. And, and, and to be honest with you, it's one that you, when you look at it properly and honestly, you, you end up keep on repenting because you know how easy it is to just move into comfort zone or personal preference zone. The way that we think about communion, is it shaped by the gospel or your personal preference? When you look at the music in the church, is it shaped by your personal preference or by the gospel? Not always comfortable to ask the question, is it? We're slaves to the gospel. It, it, it simply means that the gospel is the it's the funnel, it's, it's, the in, it's, the, it's the funnel thing. Everything goes through the eye of the gospel when it comes to our lives and when it comes to our lives together to the glory of God in the church. Let me give you a, a, an obvious one straight out of the passage. Have a look at it. Uh, it's glory to God, it's focus on the church, it's servants of the gospel, Proclaim the gospel. Have a look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Although I am, the, I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach, proclaim to the Gentiles the boundless or the unsearchable riches of Christ. So think about it this way. If salvation only comes through the gospel, if salvation only comes through believing the gospel, hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and if it's only through the gospel that we are united together, all nations into one body, if that's the only way that happens, what do you do with the gospel? Share it. Witness to it. Proclaim it. Test it. Uh, testify to it. Here's what Paul's really saying. He's saying, if, if we truly get the mystery in the Old Testament, Resolved or revealed in the gospel in the New Testament. And we, and we understand of what the gospel has done, taking the two and becoming one. There, 
what else can you do? only thing you can do. It's what you give your life to. You'd be even prepared to die for it. Even prepared to go to prison for it. I mean, where, where is Paul when he writes this? Have a look at verse 1. Have a look at verse 13. Where is he? He says he's in prison. And he says, and don't, verse 13, he says, and don't even worry about it. You're concerned. Don't be concerned about me. I'm in prison for the gospel. <laughs> That's okay. Let me put it Slightly differently like this. The church of Jesus Christ becomes bigger and bigger and bigger as people from all the nations respond to it and come into it. And so the proclamation of the gospel is the very central core thing that the church does. That's what we do to the glory of God, to bring people from the nations into the church. This might sound a little bit quirky. Let me put it this way to you. If God's plan was the church through the gospel, then the plan of the church is the church through the gospel. Does that make sense? No, I didn't think so. If God's plan is the church, then the plan of the church is the church. Now, that sounds still gobbledygook. It's okay, Caroline. I'm going to try and do it this way. It means, ultimately, <laughs> in practice, that the, 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 the church should be committed to seeing multi-ethnic churches planted all over the world. If the goal of God is the church, then the, church, the goal of the church is church planting of people of every nation. It shouldn't be just that we have a desire to see the gospel proclaimed, but a deep-seated desire and commitment and prayer to see multi-ethnic churches planted in the nations. Surely this must impact our mission policy. Who do you want to connect with? We want to connect with people, with Christians, that are seeking to plant churches because that's the plan of God. That's the focus of God. That's where he gets glory. It should also be that we desire BBC to be more ethnically diverse. Now, we come from all over the world, right? Did you see each other earlier? But did you see a very strong similarity in the majority? What are we? What are we largely? White, middle class, upper, suburbia, right? Now, don't feel guilty about that. That's okay. But that's what we are. That's the majority of what God has put together, right? And, but as we get this, what should we hope for? Hope God to do in our midst? Bring more others that are not like us to learn from and to grow together. I'll give you one more then I'll finish. There's so much more we could say about this passage, just touching on it. Didn't even get to verses 10 to 12. But uh, I want you to have a look at 
Just one little phrase, and hopefully this will put it all together. Oops, we'll come back to him. Look at verse, verse 8, and notice where, where Paul says that, that, that it was given, the charge given to him that he was to preach to the Gentiles. Verse 8, the unsearchable or the boundless riches of Christ. Have a look at this next picture. Don't have to get me out of the way. No, no, no. Okay, there we go. That's fine. There's the... uh, There are the three richest guys, supposedly, in the world. And you can see their net worth. I won't mention those. Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett. Now, don't, don't, don't answer. Please don't shout out. Um, unless you really want to be honest. Can you see how much they're worth? Would you like to be as rich as them? I'll leave that one with you. It might sound a little quirky to put it this way, but because of the gospel of Christ, we're all spiritual millionaires. See, because it's through the gospel that we have been given a spiritual wealth that is beyond anything we can know and really anything that we can imagine. It's through the gospel. It's in the gospel of Christ that we have the riches of adoption. We have the riches of redemption. We've got the riches of resurrection. We've got the riches of forgiveness, the riches of the Holy Spirit, the riches of glorious eternal life. And here's Paul's point in the context of Ephesians 3, when he talks about going to the Gentiles with the unsearchable, boundless riches of Christ, he's saying that one of the greatest riches is the family of God that is so wide and so diverse, but joined together as one by the Spirit in the body in church. That's the riches. It's not all of it, but that is a significant part of the riches in Christ. It's not all for you. us together one of the greatest riches that we have is each other and the joy and sometimes the challenge of learning to know and grow with others that come from places like China and you don't really understand what they say to him Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen? Let's have the music team. Stand and sing it.